Good evening. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I uh, love this place. Uh, a lot of great history here, obviously. In fact, I was just here a month ago. We had our Ford Air Controllers uh, Association uh, uh, reunion. We dedicated our monument out there in the, in the uh, garden. Uh, and uh, so we've laid down our historical marker. Uh, and they've invited me to come back here and talk a little bit about my experiences in Southeast Asia, primarily as a forward air controller, call sign Raven. Uh, a little bit of mystique has built up over the years about that whole program, and I'm, and I'm glad to do it. But in a larger vein, uh, this is kind of a payback for me because uh, 40 years ago this summer, as a young cadet at the Air Force Academy in the class of 1969, we were on our summer tour, and one of our stops was right here at Wright-Patterson. And we visited then the Air Force Museum. Some of the same displays, in fact, were still there. Anyway, it was over on Main Base, and uh, I forget who the gentleman was that talked to us, but he, he talked a lot about the value of history and all those kind of things. And then he said, now, I have a feeling that probably you young men are going to live through some very historic and interesting times. So at some point, I want you to come back here at some point and tell your story. So here I am. So that was my tasker, and here I am. So anybody that's 18 years old here tonight, I want you to mark your calendar 40 years, and I want you to come back and, and, and repeat. Okay, we're going to talk about that war over in Vietnam. Vietnam, that's what LBJ called it, right? It's good enough for him. It's good enough for me. During that war, over a million of our countrymen served, and uh, I would submit to you that it's really incorrect to call it the Vietnam War. Uh, we call it that because the vast majority of our guys and gals who served over there served in the country of Vietnam right here. But in reality, it was a conflict, a theater conflict, that raged over the breadth and depth of this entire region for long before we got there and long after we left. It was a theater conflict. And all of these countries were involved. And tonight, what I want to do is I want to talk about primarily this country right here in the middle. It's a place called Laos. I spent quite a bit of time there in Laos fighting this war. So what we're going to do now, as airmen always do, we control, dominate, and exploit the third dimension. So we're going to pop up now into low Earth orbit, and we're going to look down on the ground as we do. And we're going to talk about the war from this perspective, the theater perspective. And we're going to look at Laos and the role that it played in the war over there. Uh, during my time, uh, I uh, saw the war from inside of this country. Uh, my first tour, I was all over South Vietnam. My second tour with the Nails, I flew primarily here along the Ho Chi Minh Trail in this area here. Uh, with the Ravens, I flew up here on the Plain of Jars in northern Laos. And then when all that was done, I came back to the Nails here at NKP. And I flew down here in Cambodia until they kicked us out of here in, February, or in August of 1973. So I saw, I saw a lot of different theaters in the war. I'm going to talk tonight, like I say, about Laos. And one key point that I want to make here right now, the southern part of Laos, this is what you call key terrain. This was the key terrain in this entire theater. The North Vietnamese realized in this war that by controlling this area here, the southern part of Laos, that that was the key terrain. And by having their forces in there, they could move their forces along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, wherever they needed to send them, and it would give them great control over that entire theater of operations. And in fact, if you were to take and put one finger down here on Saigon another, and then your other finger up here on Hanoi and draw a line straight down through it, you can see right where it runs through. And right in the middle of it is a little town right there, a place called Chapone. Anybody been to Chapone? It's not a nice place, is it? 
lot of really friendly gunners there. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about. And again, when we talk to our Army and Marine and, and Navy brethren and everything, they talk about being in Vietnam. I, I get tickled sometimes. I'll be talking to some guy that was a grunt platoon leader over there, and he fought his entire war in one four-mile square block of terrain. That's all he knew. Well, I was over the entire theater. And over here, uh, certainly we had huge air bases throughout uh, uh, Vietnam here, down here, Binh and Cameron Bay and Phan Rang and Da Nang and Phuket and all those kind of places. But over here in Thailand, we had other huge bases, Udorn, Nam Phong, NKP, uh, Uban, Karat, Tok Lee. And it was like that fixed aircraft carrier that we had over there and the air assets that we had over the, the Air Force, the Marine, the Navy that would work out of there, we ranged over the breadth and depth of these, the entire theaters of the war. And it was not unusual for a two F-4s to come out of Ubon in the morning and hit a target over the Ho Chi Minh Trail, come back, rearm, go up here, do something up here, come back, rearm, and then do something in Cambodia. That's the inherent flexibility of air power, and, and we're just as good as doing that uh, today. But uh, my focus here is going to be uh, focusing on uh, the, the issue of Laos. Uh, I'm really going to kind of talk about three different things. Laos and the war, the importance of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and then the supporting of our friendly Laotian forces, which were, in effect, the Ravens and folks like that. And, uh, and that's where we're going to go tonight. I might add, too, that with all the things that we were doing throughout the war, more often than not, most often than not, because of the priority of missions, the supporting of the friendly forces in Laos became last on the list. And you'll see that here in a couple minutes when we talk in more detail. But uh, first of all, just a quick history lesson about this country of Laos. Uh, I could spend the rest of the month talking to you about the history of Laos and the war, but I, uh, just a couple key points that we've got to make. First of all, in 1959, when the North Vietnamese leaders decide to prosecute the war in the south, uh, they decide that they're going to have to use some of the train of Laos to get access into South Vietnam. And so they form a group called 559, which is given the task of building this thing called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We had U.S. advisors in there at that time supporting the Laotian government, and we were trying to keep them neutral. This started under President Eisenhower. When President Kennedy took over, that one of the first things that President Eisenhower told him was, you've got to watch Laos. That's the area that's most dangerous in all of Southeast Asia. And then you can see here, this is a statement that President Kennedy put out about the security of all of Southeast Asia will be endangered if Laos loses its neutrality. By early 1962, though, the North Vietnamese were making moves into Laos with some of their main forces. And so as a show of force, we put together a Marine Task Force, Task Force 116, out of uh, Okinawa, and they deployed into northeastern Laos, up, uh, the area around Udorn Air Base up there, and they were prepared to go into Laos. That was used so that it would strengthen our bargaining position because at the same time, we're meeting in Geneva with 14 other nations to try to declare some kind of neutrality for Laos. Uh, and it worked. We uh, did hammer out a treaty, 14 different parties, including ourselves, the Soviet Union, China, South Vietnam, North Vietnam, Laos, signed an agreement that said Laos would be neutral and everybody would remove their foreign forces from there. Well, the only problem was NVA didn't pull out. North Vietnamese Army did not pull out. So we kept a small covert force called Project 404 of specific individuals with specific skills there to support the Laotian uh, government. Then from 1962 until 1975, they had an ongoing, continuous civil war. Of course, there was nothing civil about it. And in fact, it was a proxy war between us and the North Vietnamese as we worked with uh, the Laotian government uh, 
and the Pocket Lao Laotian communists uh, backed by the North Vietnamese uh, fought. And that war went back and forth. And in fact, there were some really large ground battles that took place up there that you'll never read about in any Vietnam history because it was on the other side of the fence. What good did that treaty do? Well, it helped us to declare that Laos was neutral. So remember that. Laos is neutral. Nobody's going to mess with Laos, okay? Laos itself is a very primitive country, very rugged, very beautiful, uh, tough place to operate, uh, and it's a country that even today is rushing headlong into the 18th century. We, uh, they're way behind. Okay, with the Laotian problem solved, we turned to Vietnam because things that were going on there. And again, I'm not going to create all the history here, but I need to work you up to a certain point. As the war there transpired and we started to attack and defeat the Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese realized that uh, they needed to bring support and equipment down to the south. And their initial attempts to do this were right through the DMZ here, up around the area in Quezon here. Uh, the South Vietnamese very effectively blocked them there. So they sent Group 559 into the eastern part of Laos here that they controlled with the forces that they never pulled out, and they started building this complex of roads that would turn out to be the labyrinth of roads and cross structures and everything that would become the Ho Chi Minh Trail. There was no one trail. There was just this huge complex of roads back and forth. And uh, as the war went on, it became ever more intense, ever more important, because at the same time, the North Vietnamese also had the capability of bringing supplies down by sea, and they'd come down and they'd land along the coast. They'd land down here in the Delta area, and they'd come around here to Cambodia, and they'd offload their supplies here, and then bring them into the country that way. Over the years, we used our Navy under op Operation uh, Market Garden to shut down the, ca the capacity to do that. We blocked them up here. We blocked them all down through the south. We spent a, a sent a special naval task force in down here that cleaned all this out. And then in 1970, we went into uh, Cambodia with ground forces and cleaned all that out. So that left only one conduit for the North Vietnamese to use to bring their supplies to the south, and that was the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And that led to some of the most intense battles of the war. But uh, that was the importance uh, of the trail. Now, throughout the war, of course, we're lodging all kinds of campaigns. And uh, we're bombing up here in the north under Operation Rolling Thunder and Linebacker later on. And, of course, these two overarching, two overarching plans here had sub-plans and smaller plans that were being done. And at the same time, we're prosecuting an interdiction campaign now out here along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We call it all this Steel Tiger and the commando hunt campaigns that took place then to try to block the trail. Our efforts up in the north, supporting the friendlies up in that area there, is called barrel roll. And then later on, when we, uh, we intervened down into Cambodia, that operation was called Freedom Deal. And again, air power, as flexible as it is, would literally change from one of these to other all the time. But there's one common thread through all of this, and the priority of missions almost always last on the pecking order for assets were the guys up here in barrel roll. What the North Vietnamese would do, they watched very carefully the amount of effort that we applied against the Ho Chi Minh Trail, counting sorties and effects that we had. And when they felt that we were being effective on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, they would launch some kind of a campaign up here in barrel roll or down here to the western areas of, of, of southern Laos. So there's a big plateau down here called the Bolivans Plateau, very dramatic feature. They would launch campaigns down there, and we would start siphoning off air into that area. But again, it was always kind of a tertiary effort, but there was heavy fighting going on in, 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 the, in those areas. 
A little quick matrix here. Let me talk you through this. Uh, this is kind of a matrix talking about the efforts that we put in against the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Kind of a microcosm analysis for the war in general. And you can see on the left there, we've got our guys, if you will, us, South Vietnam, Laotians, Cambodians, the Thais, and them being the enemy, the North Vietnamese, uh, supplied by the Soviet Union, China, Communist bloc, and all that. They were really pumping supplies in there. Our strategic objective, primarily throughout at this time, was to stop the infiltration from the north, to isolate it, and get out of there. The North Vietnamese, what did they want to do? They wanted to unify both Vietnams under their control, and they wanted to establish theater hegemony, hegemony over that entire area and be the big boss king of that area. They've been referred to sometimes as the Prussians of, of Asia. Effectively, their mission was an offensive one in that they were sending their forces forward. Ours, by choice, was a defensive mission. We're trying to defend our allies, hold back, wait for them to come to us. The North Vietnamese were always greatly fearful that we were going to attack their country with our amphibious marine divisions, with our airborne divisions, with our air assault divisions. We never did that, and they could never understand why to this day. Primarily, though, our campaign against the Ho Chi Minh Trail was with air power. And one of the lead places from which we fought that, uh, fought that cam campaign was this place right here, the Kampanam, Thailand. My uh, home in 1972 and 73, uh, a little bit of 74, literally carved out of the jungle. It has since returned to the jungle. I've seen some pictures of it recently. It's all jungle again. Great place, though, primarily special ops. And in 1966, we put a forward air controller squadron in there. The 23rd Tactical Air Support Squadron. Got any nail facts in here? Oh, there we go. Several of us in here. That was our call, call sign, nail. And primarily, our main job was to fly over the Ho Chi Minh Trail, spot enemy targets, call in airstrikes, and destroy them. And uh, we, were, we were pretty good at that. First airplane, of course, that we flew was the 01, but I'm going to show you a picture of that here in a few minutes when I get into the Ravens. But uh, in 1967, started flying the 02 here up there. This one here actually belonged to the 20th Tactical Air Support Squadron. Which are, it was a, a, a lesser squadron of forward air controllers assigned over in Da Nang, Vietnam. We, uh, we helped them as much as we could, but uh, they worked the trail from the east side in their call sign. Uh, they were the cubby facts over there. And, of course, later on, the OV-10 that we got in there, uh, pretty good airplane, longer legs, uh, more survivable, a lot of fun to fly, really. The early trail looked a lot like this. This is a picture that was taken in 1965 by Bill Tilton, a nail fact that was over there. And you can see a little bit about the problems that we had because one of the things that we wanted to do to interdict one of our targets, obviously, is the trail itself. But I, I got to tell you, it's really hard to destroy a dirt road. Now think about that, okay? And here's an example. Look at this. Bomb hit the trail right there. Perfect. What did he do? He just went right around it. Okay. And a lot of these areas, that's what they, we would do. And, and we would take areas like this, we'll call common interdiction points, and we would bomb them mercilessly day after day after day, literally bomb the same place uh, trying to block the road. And literally uh, within minutes, the gomers would be down there with their shovels digging stuff out. In fact, share one war story with you. I was out one day, and I, and I had some F-4s coming in to me to, uh, to hit an interdiction point on the side of a mountain. And uh, sure enough, we put in two 2,000-pound laser-guided bombs and hit right above the road, and all that dirt just cascaded down there, completely blocked the road, and the fighters leave, and then the dust starts to clear. And I look down there, and here's these guys down there with shovels. They're digging this thing out. 
thinks, oh, man, come on, I can't allow this. So I rolled in and fired a couple rockets at him, and as I pulled off, this one guy's going, he's going like this. <laughs> Certain signals are universal. But this is a really interesting picture because you can see now that they've built a little bridge down here underneath the water, and then you can see all the pockmarks. And look at the, look at the bunkers here. There's a bunker uncovered there, and there's another one there. And I think it looks to me like you know, some kind of, that might be a gun site down there. So you can see they kept people right around that, and literally as we go in to destroy it, they'd be right back in there digging it out again. This is an early picture, but uh, as it evolved and the campaign evolved, it got to where it looked like this. This is very common. And, and like I say, it was a whole spider web of roads and, 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 and cross connections and everything else. And so if we bomb this side over here, they go over here. And here you can see now, here's the karst of Laos. And, and you can see the road structure running up along that. And I, most assuredly, there were caves in there uh, where they were putting supplies. And then, of course, the fording points over the rivers. It's quite a complex, quite an operation. And then uh, a friend of mine who did those kind of things came back from a mission one day. Uh, it was an Army guy, and he gave me this picture. And he said, this is what it looks like from the ground. Thank you very much. That's not my picture. I can't take credit for that. But very interesting. Of course, one of our main targets was trucks, and I was out one day, and uh, the, the, they were pretty good about hiding their trucks, especially in daytime, but, I, but I, I, this is a picture I actually took when I was a Raven fac, and, and you know, I was flying up into the plane of jars, and I saw a dust trail from several miles away, so I flew over it, and this guy was driving his truck in the middle of the day, dummy, and so I followed him down, and he parked his truck right underneath that tree right there, okay, and so I just happened to have some fighters in the area, and they came in there, and Shot it up with rockets, and there he's burning up now. See, and now this is a really interesting picture here because the, 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 the truck drivers were really good at hiding their trucks. They had some very, very excellent areas, uh, trees and everything that they would use to hide their trucks, but they never covered their tracks, okay? And then look at the tracks. Look at how prominent they are, see? Because they would mat down the grass, and then you can see where they're turning around and everything. And so we would use that intelligence analysis, and it was pretty simple. You know, even a pilot can figure that out. You follow the trail, right down there, and that's where they are. And uh, we'd go in and beat them up pretty hard. One of our favorite weapons was this guy. This is the old A1J from the first Special Operations Squadron there at NKP. Great bunch of guys. He's coming up to do a strike force, and you can see he's got a scarf in the wind there and everything. And, and uh, absolutely an amazing airplane, amazing airplane. Um, Tough as nails, carried all kinds of weapons, had gas. It, it could fly forever. In fact, the limiting factor on this airplane was oil. Okay, They would take off. Somebody told me once they had their, their oil tank was like 21 gallons of oil. And the, air, the, the engine would leak all the time. In fact, a guy told me, he said, if I, if I would come out and pre-flight the airplane and it's not leaking, I'm not taking the airplane because something's wrong with it. I'm not going to go. <laughs> Fix it. Make it leak. Okay, And they had a sump light. And so when the sump light would come on, that means you got like, Two gallons of oil, you got to go home. That was your go-home life. I used to tell these guys, I said, you know, if the North Vietnamese ever develop an oil-seeking missile, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> and they said, you're right. Great guys. Of course, they did a lot of search and rescue work for us, too, up there. So, And then uh, here was our main worker being here, the old uh, F-4D or F-4 series of airplanes. We had hundreds of these over there. In fact, I think it was like 440 of them lost in the entire war. Shot down, crash, whatever. This guy's. Uh, this was taken in the summer of 1972. This particular airplane deployed with the Holloman 49th Tac Fighter Wing. That summer they were uh, 
ordered to deploy to Southeast Asia in response to the Easter offensive. They did. Uh, today we call those Air Expeditionary Wings, Air Expeditionary Forces. Back in those days, they didn't call it anything. They just did it. They just deployed three squadrons over there, and they arrived over in Southeast Asia, and within 24 hours, they were flying bombing sorties, doing a good job. This guy, a lot to this picture. First of all, you can see he's carrying Mark 82s down here. Uh, these have got uh, fuse extenders on them. We call those daisy cutters. Uh, makes the bomb go off above the ground, gives you a better frag pattern against uh, soft targets like trucks and people and stuff like that. And then uh, on the center line, he's got six more, so a total of 12 of those, and these are instantaneous fuses that'll hit the ground and go off, or they might have delay fuses. They'll crater the ground if we need some of that. And then right here, he's carrying an ALQ-87 electronic jamming pod because the North Vietnamese by 1972 had developed surface-to-air missiles that could track us and shoot us down. And so we developed jamming technology to preclude them from doing that, and that's what he's got on board there. So there's a, there's a lot to this picture. We used hundreds of times I put in the F-4s. And then these guys, the B-52 is coming up for us. This is an arc light going in, B-52 strike. The airplanes would come up. They would come up in cells of three. Uh, each one had, I think, 108, something like that, bombs per aircraft. And when they would drop the bombs, they would ripple them along like that. And the targeting box for a B-52 strike was one kilometer by two kilometers. And they would take out everything in that area. And you can see this one going in here. We call those arc lights. The, uh, the North Vietnamese, needless to say, very seriously feared this weapon. And, of course, they shot back at us. If you look closely here now, uh, you'll see these little white pock marks here. That's 23 millimeter going off. Uh, I was putting in a strike one day. And I wanted to get a picture of one of the airplanes as it went by. And just as he went by, I, I, I saw the sparkles in the, uh, in the camera. I took the picture and then very quickly moved out of the area because I didn't want to get any 23 millimeter around me. 23 millimeter is a very, very serious weapon. comes up very fast. Explosive shell. My uh, second mission is a nail fac, forward air controller. Uh, I got hit by a 23 millimeter uh, shell. came up. It hit the airplane. And, and the shell came up. And the shell had actually tumbled, so it did not hit primer first. So the shell came up and hit the airplane and stuck in the airplane. I didn't know it at the time. Stuck in, the, in one of our FM radios. Uh, only thing I knew was that my radio wasn't working. So when I got back, I rode up the airplane, and uh, guys came out to fix the radio. And they look up in there, and there's a shell sitting in there, a live shell sideways. And so they all ran away, called the EOD guys. They disarmed it and then fixed the airplane. And if that shell had gone down, I would have had to eject to, uh, just not too far south of a place called Bankarai. Not a happy place. So I, I used up one of my lucky chits on that one. And uh, sometimes they got us, too. This was a, it was a 37 millimeter shell that hit, hit the, right on the wingtip of an OV-10. And you can see the damage that it did. And fortunately, if it had, had hit, any further, hit, hit any further in, it would have crumpled the wing or it would have knocked the airplane down. But this, uh, this guy flew it home. Lots of guns. And here's uh, one, I was out one day and, and, and I spotted a gun. Uh, uh, again, they were masters at camouflaging these guns, okay? But two things they didn't do. They didn't cover their tracks. And you can see the tracks on this one coming in right here. So I, I, I saw a muzzle blast down there. And I went down, I found it. And we, and we dropped some bombs around and we got it cleared off. And then right in that bunker, right there, was a gun. And I got some more airplanes in there and there he goes. We got him. So sorry about that, Gunner. That's the way it goes. And then again, I mentioned the SA-2s, the surface-to-air missile-2s that they brought down. 
by, by late 1972, these were all along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And in fact, we don't like to admit this, but by then, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was so dangerous that there were whole big areas where we couldn't fly. Now, we don't like to admit that we lost air superiority to ground-based weapons, but I'm here to tell you, when you can't send in your B-52s, your forward air controllers, or even your gunships, it sounds to me like the enemy's controlling that airspace. Uh, and they were doing it very effective, effectively with the SA-2s and the thousands of guns that were out there. There were just guns everywhere of all different size. My very first mission when I was over there was in Nailfac. Uh, we were again up around Bankarai Pass, which was a very bad area, and uh, started hearing this, this funny sound on the radio and figured out that it was something on the guard frequency, 243.0. What it was, it was a gun-laying radar that was tracking us, and all of a sudden we started getting these big black airbursts coming up, boom, over here and boom over here. I'm just a new guy. I didn't know what it was. I mean, it looked like 12 o'clock high, okay? And, and, and my IP in the back, one went off off my left side, and I said, hey, what's that? And he goes, what? And I said, off the left side, and he looked, and he grabbed the airplane, pulled us off to the side there, and we were being tracked by a radar-controlled 100-millimeter gun. Really, really big airbursts. That was my first mission. Second mission, I was hit by 23. I thought, boy, that's going to be a long year, using up my lucky. But again, the SA-2, very dangerous weapon. Here's a picture of two SA-2 missiles that have just exploded. Now, I thank the guy for giving me a copy of this picture. I can't imagine having the composure of being able to, while those things are coming up and going off, taking the picture. I would have gone elsewhere, but he let me have a copy of the picture. These are, these are, these are actually taken uh, during the BAP-21 rescue. One of the things we tried to do along the Ho Chi Minh Trail to try to find the enemy, we seeded that whole area up there with electronic sensor devices. And the program's called Muscle Shoals and Igloo White and stuff like this. And this is a, a collection of them that are on display now down at uh, Eglin Air Force Base at the Armament Museum down there, the various ones. And uh, we had quite a bit of success with these things. But the problem was that we were never able to truly, we never had a system in place to truly tell us where they were. The maps were not that accurate. So we never got the level of detail out of them that we needed to do what we needed to do but they were providing us with good uh, data. Uh, we also discovered that the North Vietnamese figured out how they worked, uh, and they would fool them, and they would decoy them, and they would do all kinds of things with them. And, and, and plus, uh, a lot of them were, were uh, audio recording devices, and, and, and we, could, we could listen to what the microphones were picking up. And we dropped one uh, near a base camp one day, and some of the recordings that we got were, were actually X-rated. Interesting. The things that went on along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, who would have thought? Uh, in 1972, the Air Force came in, and they took 15 of our OV-10s, and they modified them. Another attempt to use technology to fight this war. We modified our airplanes with laser designators right here. These are called pave nails. We put on board a Loran navigational system to give us the ability to have some kind of precise location of targets. And with the laser designation device, we could zot a target on the ground and then guide a laser-guided bomb to it. It is so common today. This was beginning, the beginning of the laser precision revolution, right there in our little squadron. We were the, some of the first ones to do that. And then when we would zot a target on the ground, we could ask it to tell us what its Loran location was. Hey, pretty neat stuff. So now we can look down and we can zot a target on the ground and get coordinates. But still, not very, very precise uh, as we want it to be. But again, one more attempt to use technology to fight that trail war. And then we sent in these guys, and God bless them all. These are the special ops bubbas that went in 
crawled along the trail. As far as I'm concerned, these are some of our bravest Americans right here. And now their sons and daughters are out doing similar things now in places like in Afghanistan and Iraq. In many cases, they were our eyes and ears along the trail. And many of us flew missions supporting these guys. In fact, we had a program called Prairie Fire where a lot of our facts, in fact, did that very mission. But we were not as successful with those guys for one very simple reason. We couldn't solve the navigation and location problem. But this is the same tactic now, the, the combination of special ops teams and air power that we used in Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, it was spectacularly successful. Why? One very simple reason, the GPS system. When we put in place the GPS system, it gave us the ability to precisely locate something and then pass those coordinates to somebody else to do something with those coordinates. And this is a revolution in combat aviation. A long time ago, if you remember your doctrine books, there was an Italian by the name of Giglio Duhay. He said that the bomber will always get through. Well, he was only partly right. The bomber platform may not necessarily get through, but we've got all kinds of devices and ways now of getting the bomb through using this kind of navigation device to hit that target. And now the challenge is precisely defining what that target should be uh, so we can go after it. And a great story from uh, Operation Allied Freedom in 1999 when we attacked Serbia. We wanted to destroy a specific building in downtown Belgrade. So we got the coordinates and we took it out with a GPS-guided bomb. Great shot. Only problem was it wasn't what we thought it was. In fact, it was the Chinese embassy that we bombed. And since an embassy represents a nation and is, in fact, considered part of that nation, in effect, we bombed China during the OAF operation. But it was so politically, it was a mess, but it was a great shot. We hit exactly what we were shooting for. But GPS now, getting way ahead of myself here, the GPS, the revolution in that technology was the secret to the war in Desert Storm. That's what gave us the ability to maneuver our forces across the desert uh, using those GPS devices. In fact, the, the, uh, the Arabs over there, they call the GPS, they call it the magic compass. And they got it exactly right. Now, Saddam didn't know about this device. He didn't know how all that worked, see? So he thought that for us to maneuver across the desert, we would have to follow certain prescribed known routes. And one of them was a place called the Wadi Al-Batin that came up the west side of Kuwait. So he positioned his forces assuming that we were going to attack through the Wadi Al-Batin. Did we take advantage of that? Sure we did. We ran a deception plan, kept his forces in place, and then used the GPSs to maneuver all our main forces out there to west and come around. Tremendous advance in technology. Another little war story I like to share from Desert Storm because it makes this point very eloquently. About two weeks into the war, General Schwarzkopf had directed that we use the B-52s against the uh, Iraqi ground forces that were in Kuwait. Okay, fine, we can do that. And after about two weeks, they did some bomb damage analysis, and they discovered that about 15% or so of the B-52 strikes were about 300 meters off. Hmm. So they assigned this young officer to do further analysis to figure out what's wrong, because you know, that can be a, a big miss. So he starts checking these missions, and he finds out that every one of those B-52s had launched out of the big airfield down in Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean, which the Brits let us use to fly missions out of. So he goes down there and he talks to the B-52 guys and finds out that their airplanes were not GPS equipped. They were using INS, Inertial Navigational System, which were based on ring laser gyros. Very, very accurate system. But the way that system works, before you take off, you have to tell the airplane where it is. And so traditionally what they would do is right underneath the airplane, wherever, right below where the, where the, uh, 
the sensor package for the INS was they would go in there and they would, they would determine those coordinates and they would mark them off to the side so when the pilots are loading in their initial location in the airplane, they can look out the window and see it and, and tap it in. So he goes in there and he goes, well, maybe, where did you get those coordinates? Well, we got them from GPS. Hmm, okay. So he goes back to the target ears and he goes, well, where did you get the target coordinates? Well, we got them from GPS. He goes, wow, boy, this, what am I missing here? And finally somebody says, well, you realize now there are different databases for GPS. He goes, what do you mean? So well, when it first came out, we did a World Geological Survey, WGS 77, and we mapped the world with it then. And then in 1984, we did another one, WGS 84. Maybe there's a difference in databases. So he goes back to the target ears and he says, what database did you use to figure out your targets? And he said, well, our map says WGS 84. So he calls down to the Brits at, 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 uh, down there uh, in the Indian Ocean, uh, Diego Garcia, and he goes, well, what did you use? Well, let's see, let me check. Oh, gee, we used WGS 77. Hmm. So he did a comparison in this region, and they were 300 meters off. That's how good the system is. And we had a whole set of forward air controllers that worked just with those guys. I'd say there's the prayer fire facts. This is Gary Dickers, one of our good buds. He flew directly with those guys, and it's a very tight uh, group of individuals and, and a bunch of real pros. They, they were just like the Ravens, except they were working with, with our forces over there. And there were plans to run ground operations in Laos during the war. General Westmoreland realized the importance of the trail, and he put together an operation called El Paso. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to introduce two-plus divisions of troops, air mobile troops, and just basically clean out this area. He was never given authority to do it. But later on in uh, 1971, uh, General Creighton Abrams was able to get the authority from President Nixon and also the uh, South Vietnamese to launch a major ground operation against a little town here in Laos called Chapon. I mentioned that earlier, the knuckle of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. When he did his analysis, he recommended that we, that we send in three South Vietnamese divisions. The, North, the South Vietnamese President Thieu said, I'll give you two. So they sent in two. They were not successful, and they were run out. Uh, they were not successful because the North Vietnamese knew that if they lost the trail, the war was over. So it was a, the climatic, climactic battle of the war, I think. Uh, they sent their forces in, and for about a month, they just slugged it out right there in Laos, not in Vietnam, in Laos, uh, to maintain control of that area. They pushed the South Vietnamese out of there, and they main, maintained control of the trail. And then that next year, late 71 into early 72, the forces coming south from the north, to set up for the Easter Offensive of 72 with the heaviest traffic that we ever saw. And like I say, there were guns everywhere. There were surface-to-air missiles. It was a dangerous, dangerous place out there. So that's kind of background to show you the importance of Laos. Same time, though, like I said, we had operations going on up there supporting our, our Laotian-friendly forces because, again, the North Vietnamese would run attacks against them, and they would try to uh, uh, draw off uh, air assets from the trail because we were hurting them out there by running these attacks. And, and these attacks were very finely tuned. They wanted to do two things. They wanted to draw off air power from the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but at the same time, they didn't want to be so bold, so brazen as to threaten the existence of the Laotian government to the point where we would then send in our ground forces to support them. So it was kind of like a finely tuned little minuet back and forth between all of this. We ran some great operations in that area. Uh, I might add, too, that uh, our entire time in, 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 uh, the, in the Ho Chi Minh Trail and throughout last, we, we lost a total of 493 aircraft we had shot down over there 
lost a lot of good guys. A lot of those guys still haven't come home yet. In fact, just yesterday, one of our fact brethren, was uh, uh, his body was recently recovered, and he was buried in Arlington. So this is still, still going on. But we supported uh, the Delosian Friendly Forces. I mentioned earlier Project 404. These are folks we left behind covertly. And initially, the guys that were there were Air Force combat controllers called Butterflies. Uh, they were running operations. I'm going to talk about them a little bit more. And then uh, ultimately, they were uh, replaced by the Raven forward air controllers. And of course, we were getting all kinds of support from the Air Force, Marine, Navy, and of course, the Laotians. We helped them uh, build up a small Air Force, too. And they, uh, and they did some good work there. And we were working all over the country. Uh, uh, when I was a Raven, I was up in this area here. But we had Ravens in the middle of here, just east of Nakam Phnom, and then several down here working in this area in, in, uh, in southern Laos. Again, our goal was to, to be the controllers for the air in there in support of those, uh, those ground forces. And, and uh, the butterflies, guys like this, Charlie Jones, one of the very first, uh, an Air Force combat controller, great American, uh, was one of the early guys in Laos. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> he was up there working with Air America, working with the CIA guys, working directly with the Laotians and among the, the various tribes up there putting in airstrikes for them. And these guys did it until about 1967. Unfortunately, in 1967, General Momire, the commander of 7th Air Force, who was a career hard, proud fighter pilot, he discovered that, oh my God, you've got enlisted guys controlling my fighters up there. I can't have that. Get some commissioned officers facts up there right now. So he started pulling all these guys out, as good as they were, and uh, we're going to send up some, uh, some forward air controllers. So we sent a bunch of guys like this guy right here, Jim Lemon. Jim was a nail fact. He got the call to go up there to Laos and help these guys out. So he heads up there, and when he gets up there, he checks in with the embassy. What are we going to do? Who are we going to be working with? Well, you're going to be working with this warlord here, a guy by the name of Vang Pao over here, and his CIA bubba right here, and I forgot his name. And you're going to be working with some of his forward air guides, like this guy right here, Indian, who was a badass dude. And uh, this is uh, when Jim first got up there. He was, in fact, the first guy to go up there. And they got up there, and they said, okay, we're going to be flying missions. What's our call sign? Well, I don't know. Who do you want to be? I said, well, we don't want to use butterfly because that sounds a lot like firefly, which is the call sign that, that uh, some of the strike airplanes out of NKP were using. So let's call ourselves Ravens. Cool. Okay. So we started using the call sign Raven. Well, unfortunately, that caused a problem with the Navy because one of the tactical fighter squadrons off of one of the carriers, their call sign was Raven. So we had to deconflict that. We finally bought off the Navy to use the term Raven Jets. They called themselves the Raven Jets, and then we were the Ravens. And so we stole the fair and square. That's why we got the call sign. And here are the guys. He, Jim's gotten up there, and he's getting squared away, and he's getting his combat brief, and, and they were having a party or something up there. And these are all uh, Hmong wives, and you can tell that they're wives because they're wearing their silver. This, uh, this is their equivalent of Social Security, Medicare, 401K, kill plan, everything. That's, that's their family savings right there, and that's how you can tell they were married because they would then become the protectors of their family uh, wealth. That's the way they did it. And like I say, we all ended up up there working for warlords. And this is General Vang Pao again. Uh, that's a very interesting picture. This was, uh, we went up one day to, to have a celebration at a place called Buam Long, which was a, a, a remote site way up in northern Laos. Uh, and Vang Pao invited a bunch of us to go up there. And he's got a bunch of his uh, Laotian and Hmong pilots here. These are 228 pilots and everything, and, and we're up there having a good time. What's interesting in this picture, down here is, I forget this, this is Colonel Boom. He was the regimental commander up there. Obviously took the moment to relieve himself while the general was talking. I don't know if there was a signal there or what. Interesting people to work with, I'll tell you. So anyway, the Air Force 
had a, had a standing call for volunteers over there amongst the fact force, and any of us that wanted to could volunteer for uh, what was called the Steve Canyon Program, which was the program under which you would volunteer to go up to the Ravens. And in uh, August of 72, uh, I happened to run into a buddy of mine from the Air Force Academy, a guy by the name of Jocko Hayden, who uh, was over there as a fact. And he had done six months flying missions, and then he got an opportunity to go down and do a staff tour in Saigon. And I ran into Jocko at the Bar of Da Nang, and I said, Jocko, what are you doing? He said, I'm running the Steve Canyon program. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, you interested? And I said, well, I knew what it was. I knew about the Ravens and everything. We all knew about the legends. And I said, well, like, you know, what, what's the deal? He goes, well, he said, you volunteer, and then the paperwork comes into me, and then I work it through, and then I decide on who I'm going to send up there. And I said, well, how many applications do you have now? He said, I got about 100. Well, he said, are you interested? I said, I think about volunteering. I was there with another guy, another fact buddy of mine, a guy by the name of H. Ornby, buddy of mine from the Air Force Academy. And so finally, I said, Jocko, you know what? We decided we're interested. We want those two slots. He goes, well, you know, I got like 100 applications on my desk. And then he finally says, but for the cost of drinks and dinner tonight, I can work something out. <laughs> so we took care of him, and we were the next two guys to go up to the Raven program. That's how we got up there. And uh, I went over then to Udorn, their base where we had a detachment there of special operations guys, the place called Water Pump, doing all kinds of things that I wish I had the time to tell you about. Did our in-processing there, got sheep dipped, took off our uniforms because we were going to be working in civilian clothes, and got our ID cards. And I was assigned to the American Embassy, and my boss was the ambassador. What can I say? Never met the guy, but I was working for him. And I understand I could probably use this card today to vote. You know, I mean, that's, that's all it takes anymore. And I sign into the Raven program, and I'm off up there, and I get up there now, and I'm going to check out in the, in the venerable old one. Now, I'm used to flying the OV-10 with tricycle landing gear, and now i got to learn how to fly the O-1. Now, if you notice here, this is Terry Pfaff. He's another one of our Ravens. And it's a tail dragger. How many people have drawn, flown tra tail dragger in here? Okay, you know where I'm going here. A tail dragger flies just like any other airplane when you're five feet off the ground. But when you get down five feet and below, it's a whole different monster, and you've got to learn how to properly land this thing, because if you don't land it right and get your weight back on that tail wheel, you'll ground loop the airplane. So we get up there. I had to convert from the OV-10, which did its approaches at about 120 knots, to the O-1, which did its approaches at about 70 knots, learn how, to land, learn how to land this thing, and we had to go out, and the rule was, before I could fly a combat mission, I had to do 100 landings in the airplane. But can you imagine, in the pattern, in an O-1, doing 100 landings? The IP that I had with me, uh, Glenn Jamelli, couldn't pay that guy enough to do that. But uh, got us trained, and then we went off to do, to do our things. And then I got dispatched up to Longchen, the special secret camp up in Laos. Now, I got to apologize for the slide because I got it backwards. So if I could put a mirror up there, you'd see what it exactly looked. But this is, uh, you can see it there. This is Skyline Ridge up here. And uh, coming in, I was coming over the top and set up a landing pattern coming this way. A very effective runway. It had a very good barrier system attached to it. At the other end of the runway, there was about a 400-foot karst, and that was going to stop you. One way or the other, it was going to stop you. And we would land this way and take off this way, and for, for six months as a raven, I effect effectively worked out of that area up there supporting General uh, Vang Pao. We actually lived, though, in, in, the, in, the, in Vientiane, and this is our house, and life was good. As a young uh, single lieutenant in Vientiane, Laos, we had a lot of fun. And yes, I've got the gold bracelet, but I don't wear it anymore because you can't get it through airport security. It's just too much of a hassle, so I, just, I left it home. Vientiane was basically an open international city, and while we're up there, we're all in civilian clothes and everything, and we were allowed to grow our hair long, so we're not supposed to look like military guys, okay? 
and we were out and we had to run in the town and we'd run into Russians, we'd run into Chinese and probably some North Vietnamese too, I don't know, but it was a, a fairly collegial place, a lot of interesting things going on. And of course, we're working with the Hmong, the Laotian. This guy here, this is Zhang Li Tu. He was one of the uh, Laotian pilots. His call sign was Nokatan 502. We trained him, he was a T-28 pilot, but we also trained him to be a forward air controller. And we got him certified to control US air. And I was up on the Freak one day, and he's at work in the area. And the controlling aircraft up in that area, call sign uh, uh, Cricket, called him up and said, okay, 502, I'm gonna send you a flight of F-4s. Okay, you know, he's ready to go. And so he's got a target, and the F-4s check in with him, and they find out that it's this guy. You know, hey, who are you? We're not gonna work for you. And so I come up on the Freak, and I said, hey guys, this is Raven 25. I know this guy, he's good, he's a qualified, he's, uh, he's, he's valid, border controller and he's authorized to put you guys in, so go ahead and take your strike. So he put them in and did just fine, and uh, from then on, uh, we'd siphon a lot of air off to those guys, and, and, they, would, and they would do the war up there. Uh, also worked with uh, the, the Hmong and Laotian tribe uh, uh, battalions down below on the ground, and in this late stage in the war, we even had uh, battalions from Thailand. They were supporting the war up there with, with ground forces, and a lot of the battles that we engaged in was with, with uh, with Thai forces. Sometimes they're a little hard to understand on the radio. One of my very first missions, uh, I'm flying along, and we, we always had a standard FM frequency that we would monitor, kind of like a common frequency, so if somebody gets in trouble, they can call up and ask for help. So we're flying along, we're doing our thing, and I got uh, a guy by the name of Spike Milam in the back seat is checking me out in the area, going to turn me loose, and I keep hearing this call, N11, N11. And finally Spike says, hey, you gonna answer him? I said, answer who? The guys are calling me. I said, I'm not N11. He goes, no. What they're saying is, any raven. I just have a little trouble with the words. Oh, okay. So I responded to these guys, and they were in trouble, and they needed help, so I went over and helped them out. Endless series of targets, endless series of airstrikes that we worked. Uh, one in particular that I remember, I was up one day. I had a, uh, a Hmong in my back seat who uh, worked directly for Vang Pao, and he could interpret for me, and we talked to teams on the ground. And we were up on the eastern side of the plane of jars, up on the eastern side of the plane of jars, and I, and I looked down, and I got my binoculars, and I'm looking along the ground, and I see this column of troops walking through the trees. And I, I get my guy in the back, and I say, look down. I said, those are friendly. Go, oh, no, no friendly, no friendly. And you could see them. They were walking along, and they had pith helmets on, and they had rifles and packs. Said, oh, wow, man, I need some air. So I called up Cricket, and I said, can you give me some, an airstrike right now? He says, this is your lucky day. I've got two Marine F-4s coming up with Mark 83 bombs, 1,000 pound bombs. And so these guys check in, Smut check too. Well, I knew Smut, I'd met these guys. And so now we're on a personal relationship. I say, hey Smut, it's 2-5, get up here. What do you got? He said, I got troops in the open. He says, give me a hold down. Continuous tone on the radio so he could get home into me. And uh, I says, I think I got about 60 guys down here walking through the forest and we're gonna take these guys out. I said, what are you dropping today? He says, I got Mark 83s, eight each. I said, how many passes do you wanna make? He says, we're dropping singles. He wanted to enjoy this airstrike. I pull off to the side so that the guys on the ground won't spook. I said, okay, guys, here's the deal. As soon as I roll in and fire my rockets, these guys are going to split, okay? So you get up to the north. When I see you north, I'll tell you to roll in. You roll in on me. You come in over the top of me. And as soon as I see you roll in on me, I'm going to roll in. I'm going to fire my rocket, and I'm going to pull off to the side. Got it, okay. So I look down there. Guys haven't figured out yet that I'm there. So he's in position. I said, start your rolling. He starts to roll in. I roll in. I fire my rocket. As soon as I fired my rocket, came off the rail. You could see these guys start to scatter. 
The rocket splashes, goes off, perfect mark. I said, my mark's good hit. And he said, I got you. I got the target. Get the hell out of the way. And boom, man, he rolled in and took those guys out. And, and uh, that was a very effective airstrike. That's how good it could be. And, and, and uh, the Marines, uh, of course, had sent over uh, that summer, had, in summer of 72, had sent over two squadrons. They were at Namfong, and they did great work. We also worked with the Laotians. A little different pace, though, uh, those folks. Uh, this is a picture of uh, this is T-28s on ground alert, ready to go, carrying bombs you can see on the wing there. And they uh, had goats in the area, and it was a cool spot, so they put them down right there. And that's, that's the way they were. Great guys. But I got up there, and instead of chasing trucks along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, I'd do things like this. I'd go out and work with ground teams, and I'd take out bunkers, and I'd find enemy positions like this, command and control facilities, maybe uh, gun bunkers and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a different war, a different pace. Targets like this. I went up to, went up to a lot of the, uh, the Laotian ground sites. You saw the craziest things up there. Uh, here we've got a collection of North Vietnamese weapons that have been uh, captured. Got a CIA helicopter up here uh, running supply missions. And this, in fact, right here was the runway on which I landed. Not a lot to it. Mostly just dirt, sometimes straight, sometimes not. And then their fighting position up here. And this, this is the way the war was conducted up there. This is what it meant to be a raven, to be out working with these guys. And it was uh, really something to behold. Here's a shot I took, a composite of three different photographs now, click, 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 of the plane of jars looking from south to north. Now, it, it's kind of washed out because it's an old photograph. But if you look right here, you'll see columns of, of dust. That's a B-52 strike that has just gone in right there. And then down here, you see these tracks right there like that. Those are B-52 strikes that went in there, just clobbered those areas. A lot of bombs went in there. Here's a shot of me putting in an airstrike. Uh, this is uh, an Air Force A-7 right there, just pulling off the target. Classical situation there, I'd be over the target working these guys, trying to stay out of their way while, uh, while they were putting in their bombs. So we, we all learned very quickly that when you're putting in an airstrike as a forward air controller, the place not to be when the fighter's coming off the target is at the 12 o'clock position because when he pulls off the target, he's looking back over his shoulder to see what his bomb said. He's not looking for you. I violated that rule once and almost got taken out by an A-7. I was right here. The guy came off the target. I was looking right down his intake. I said, break left. He broke right, and, and which meant that we were going to clear and then realize what he'd done and broke left again and came right back on me. I took the stick and shoved it all the way forward. The windows were open. Fortunately, I was strapped in, but binoculars, rifle, maps, everything went out the windows. I had some choice words for that guy. I violated my own rule. And I lived, that was another one of my lucky chits I used up. And of course, they shot back at us too. And this is one of our airplanes up at a place called Luang Prabang. It was caught on the ground and destroyed. So it was, uh, the war went two ways. And then we fought that war until uh, 22nd of February 1973 when we were ordered out uh, the, the uh, Paris Accords, quote, ending the Vietnam War, uh, shut us down, and we could no longer fly. And so we were the last Ravens up in the north. This is uh, H-1B, the guy I went up with, Terry Pfaff, uh, Craig Dunn, myself, and then Chuck Hines was our boss. A uh, great bunch of guys, uh, very dear friends to this day, and uh, I was proud to have had the opportunity to serve with them. Good Americans. Subsequently, I went back to uh, NKP, rejoined the Nails, and then flew in Cambodia down here until the very last day, uh, 15 August uh, 1973, when I logged my last combat sortie until I arrived in Iraq in 2004, when I locked my next combat sortie. But I finally left the squadron in March 1974, and about two weeks later, a young lieutenant by the name of uh, Bruce Carlson arrived over there. 
uh, and I understand he still works around here. So that's where he started his career, right there. So he was a nail factor. Good guy. In fact, I really enjoyed his speech at the uh, reunion we had a couple weeks, especially when the fire alarm went off. That was quite an evening. I don't know how you arrange that. Uh, so anyway, bad news is, of course, the trail stays open. We never shut it. Uh, we're pulled out up here, so we can no longer support the little guys up here. We can't support them down here. And then uh, later on, uh, after we pulled out, and uh, Congress in its wisdom shut down our support to the South Vietnamese, the Cambodians, and the Laotians, uh, and uh, these uh, forces here, uh, it just got weaker and weaker, and eventually the North Vietnamese uh, moved their main army of 22 divisions down into South Vietnam along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was now by this time unassailable because the South Vietnamese never had the firepower to get to it anyhow. And the positioning that they were able to do out of that key terrain in southern Laos right there, they were able to move their forces where they needed to. It gave them the strategic mobility that they needed to ultimately defeat uh, the South Vietnamese. Little graph here kind of shows you the priority of effort over there. This was taken out of a, a, a paper that was written by now Major General Lammy, who uh, wrote this in 95 at Maxwell Air Force Base, a really nice study that he did. It's called Barrel Roll, 68 to 73. But he analyzed where our tax waves were going in by theater up there. Uh, and you can see the start point here is July 68. This is when we were still bombing North Vietnam. And then when we stopped in North Vietnam, all that air power that we were using for uh, uh, rolling thunder and everything was now pulled back and sent out along the Ho Chi Minh Trail and Operation Steel Tiger. You can see almost a direct replacement. And then uh, things kind of kicked up a little bit here uh, in barrel roll up around the Plain of Jars in, in, in uh, July through uh, January, July 69 through January 70. A series of very large battles between General Vang Pao and his people, supported by the Ravens, were going on up there. So they, that was about the most intense time for air power up in barrel roll. Uh, but then uh, it, it kind of petered out. And then as we started the withdrawal, we started cutting down on the number of sorties. And then a plus up again. Uh, this is the battle here for the Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, Lamson 719, a big spike once again in sorties back along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, <clears throat> this is when we started Cambodia in 1970. I talked about that. And then uh, it, it drops off again. And again, not much down there uh, in the barrel roll operation. November 71, 72, the supplies coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to, uh, to build up for the Easter Offensive in 1972. And then once again, we go north in 72. All these sorties here, and where do they come out of? They come out of the assets that were going against the trail and barrel roll. And then uh, the final, the final uh, battles right there at the end. So you can see, supporting the friendly, supporting the Ravens, the stuff that we were doing was always about third fiddle. And a lot of our airstrikes that we put in were actually, we were working the Laotians. They had some uh, small gunships and stuff like that. We used a lot of artillery. We improvised, adapted, and overcame, and we did what we had to do to support them. What's interesting, though, is that in our total time in Southeast Asia and during our endeavors over there, we dropped a total of 8 million tons, million tons of bombs on those areas over there. A little less than 2 million of those tons went into Laos, okay? That's a lot of tonnies. That's a lot of bombs, okay? Laos is the second most bombed country ever. The first most bombed country is South Vietnam, which received 4 million tons of bombs during that war. And the sad part of it is a lot of those bombs are still going off over there. So what do we get out of all that? Well, obviously they went and won, and I'll let you read this uh, because I think it kind of ties it all together. And this is, this is from a, uh, a North Vietnamese uh, writing, uh, one of their histories. 
because it really emphasizes the importance of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They call it the Trung Song Road, okay? In the larger scope of things, uh, what we were doing as the Ravens, we never directly worked that much along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So we were kind of a sideshow in a way. I don't say that in a pejorative way. I, look, I, I say it in a way where you look where the priority effort was going. But with what little we were given, we did quite a bit. We did some really great work working with those guys, uh, the little guys on the ground. But the important thing is their objective was to unify the two nations under their control and establish theater hegemony. And by controlling Laos and winning the war in Laos, they were able to then roll up South Vietnam and then effectively take control of the entire theater. So that's the importance of the war in Southeast Asia. And that's why I say it's not the Vietnam War. It is the Southeast Asia conflict that raged across the breadth and depth of all those. When you think about that in the larger context of that war, I think it can be argued that Laos was the key to that war and that, in fact, right there at the very beginning, President Kennedy was uh, exactly right in what he said. And this is the legacy of what's left over there. This is a very recent photograph. This is what it looks like. A lot of fish ponds, man, over there. And uh, that's my story, Raven 2-5, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>